Thank you, JR. Guys, there's a bunch of people that work to help make services and things around here possible. They do amazing jobs, just like JR. Can we give them a round of applause? I love it. Yeah. Yeah. They really are an amazing community of people. If you ever get to know them or you ever want to volunteer, you should. Today, we start this new series called One Another. Uh, and as we get into this today, hopefully it starts to get clear as we go. But I just want to let you know, today I want to do two things because uh, we're going to cover some ground. So here's the two things. I want to spend some time talking about what it means to be a part of this thing that we're doing called the church that you're at, that you're a part of, that you're here, right? Like right now, what is this thing that we are doing? How do we see it? So that's the first thing. The second is this. We're going to talk about two key ingredients that are absolutely essential if we're going to be the kind of community, the kind of church that I think Christ created us to be. Uh, and so that's our path, that is our destination, and we're gonna jump in. So let's begin. When Jesus begins his ministry in the first century, so very, very long time ago, when Jesus begins his ministry in the first century, there was no such thing as the church. And I think we should just, I, that may seem obvious to you, but I think you should think about it for just two seconds here. Because when we say church, all these ideas and things pop into our heads, right? We have this notion of this is what it is and this is what it means. And because and we stand on what, like 2,000 years of history. When Jesus began his ministry in the first century, there was no such thing as the church. This is something they had to come to learn about, something they had to come figure out. He is born in Israel. He's born in a primarily Jewish context. And this is the, the, the era, right, that he arrives within. And so when he arrives, they have temples and they have synagogues, right? That's what people would have gathered in in this primarily Jewish context. The temple is like the one place, the big place where God is thought to dwell. The synagogues were other places where rabbis and people would teach and houses of worship kind of a thing. So you have temples, you have synagogues, or a temple, I'm sorry, in the synagogue. Now in the temple, the temple's a really key place. Because in the temple, there's this one room called the Holy of Holies. Now, within the Holy of Holies, in this tiny room, is this thing called the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of the fullness of the presence of God, right? And so they kept this in this place called the Holy of Holies. This room contains the fullness of the presence of God. And then in this room, around the front of this room, was a giant curtain. You were not allowed to go into this room. You did not have access to this room, nor could you even see inside of it. It was like the Wizard of Oz, like the mystery behind the curtain. Do you know what I mean? Type of a thing. Except one holy man was allowed to go and enter into that place once a year for ceremonial ritual. Like this is what they would do. And this was in the midst of the temple. So when you wanted to connect with God, the place that you would naturally think to go to is the temple. Because I want to get as close as I possibly can to the fullness of the presence of God where I can talk to a holy man who will mediate between me and God so that he can tell me what to do, what to sacrifice, which was customary in that time, what, what to engage in so that all of this, so that I can know that I've got like something good going with God, that I've got a good connection with God, that I'm good with God and that he is good with me. And this is how they engage this. And Jesus shows up into the midst of this era, into the midst of this dynamic, and they had been doing it this way for a very, very long time. And the word that did not exist in any way, shape or form, as far as we know it and understand it, is the word church. It just didn't. It was brand new. It was just completely different. So Jesus shows up and he starts talking at the end of his ministry to a guy named Peter, right? One of his disciples. And he looks at Peter 
And he says these words to Peter. This is found in Matthew 16, verse 18. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, which means rock, right? And on this rock, I will build my church. There's that word. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus says, I'm going to make this thing a reality. And Peter, you're going to have a big role in it, this thing called the church. And, and then there's gravity attached to that too. Where he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Like that's a big statement about the power that exists in this thing called the church. So again, Jesus says, I want to build my church when we read our Bibles. But there's a little bit of a problem there. And it's that, well, the word church didn't exist as we understand it to exist. In fact, your New Testament Bibles are written in Greek, right? Greek is the original language for the New Testament that it gets translated and all these other languages from. And in the Greek, when you go to read what Jesus said here, he actually uses a different word. He doesn't use a word called church. He uses a word called ekklesia. That is the Greek word. And when you define that word out, it means the congregation, the assembly, the gathering, right? This, this gathering of people. When Jesus looks at Peter, what he actually tells him Right? What he actually says, he goes, Peter, on this rock will I build my assembly. Will I build my gathering of people? And Peter would have known what that meant. And here's why. The word ecclesia had been being used by the Greeks and Romans and whatnot for about 500 years, I think, up to that point. And it, and it constituted something very specific. There was a, a specific understanding behind this word when it gets used. In fact, when they would call together an ecclesia, it was a gathering of all these citizens that would come together because they had something important that they needed to talk about because there was something important that they needed to do and accomplish in the world. And so what would happen is because there was this great big important thing that they needed to accomplish, we need to gather the citizens, gather the people, address this, and do something about it. We need to call together an ecclesia. The ecclesia wasn't the walls or the building or the place where the people gathered. It was the gathering itself. Do you see? This is the word. So Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, you're going to help me be a part of building this gathering, my gathering my assembly, my group of people. Now we should know this isn't a random gathering. This isn't just like, so get some people together, Peter. Because the way people understood that word, it's not just an assorted crowd. This was a specific gathering with a specific purpose because there was something important that needed to be done. And these were the right people to call together to do it. So think of that. When, Peter said, when Jesus says to Peter, upon you, I'm gonna build my gathering, what he's saying is, Peter, a day is coming when I'm gonna build a movement of people who are gonna be called together with a specific purpose for a specific reason because there's something important that I wanna do and accomplish in this world. And this thing is gonna be the very vehicle, the gathering by which to accomplish it, right? This is what it is. It's, this is how this works. And this is how the early Christians thought of themselves when they would gather together. They thought of themselves as an ecclesia, the ecclesia of Jesus, the gathering of the followers of Jesus. This is even how the culture around them thought of it. Do you know, in the first century, when, when the new church is first on the scene, nobody even knows what to call it or what to do with it. You know how they referred to it? They weren't like, those are Christians. They called them followers of the way. You want to like, think about how a name like that even comes about. They're like, those people have a different way about them they're doing things a different 
way. They follow something in a completely different way. Well, of course, that's because that way looks like the love of Christ being made known to one another and to the world around them in a really profound type of way. They, even the, the, the culture around them began to look at them as like, this is a movement of people. This is a gathering of people doing something different and significant in this world because of what's happened in them. People saw this, they understood this, but it starts to change a little by little over history. And eventually you have Christian theologians within the church, like these religious leaders and theologians within the church that stop using the word ecclesia and the understanding that comes with that. And they start to infiltrate or bring in, and I don't mean in a heinous type of way. I bet it was in a trans translation need or something like that, but they start to bring in a German word. And I realized this last week that I don't pronounce German very well, and I don't want to butcher the language. So I'm going to put it up here and here's how it's spelled. I practiced even this morning. I had Google read it back and I was like, man, it's not going to go well. I'm not doing this. So here's the word. You see that? This is the word. This combined with a little bit of another Anglo-Saxon word begun, began to constitute what we now call church. This is where we get this from. Now, here's what's interesting about the German word. It, when, when you look at what is it defined as, it's house of God, house of the Lord. And it's actually in reference to the place that Christians gather to have a worship service, to worship God or to do a thing. This word actually den like, denotes four walls and the building itself. Do you see the shift here? If you're sitting here and you're like, Ryan, I hear you, but... I hate language. And as much as you think this is all really interesting, like the history of the morphing of the word and the different things, like, can we, can we get back to it? Don't, don't check out because this impacts you really, really significantly because you're here doing whatever it is you're doing right now, being a part of whatever this thing even is. Do you see? This becomes a very, very big deal because what starts to occur is we stopped seeing the church as this movement of strategic people gathering together for a specific reason to accomplish something important in the world. And we started to see a church as the place I attend or that I go to because that's the place where God is. And you, that might seem subtle, but play that out. Does that, does that create a subtle reality if you play that out over human history? It starts to change, doesn't it? Let me ask you this question. Don't say it out loud. When you decided you were going to come here this morning, did you come to church? Did you come to attend a church? Think of the way that we think about these things. Are you the church? And, and I know a lot of us know theological answers in our heads. So we're like, well, the right answer to that is, I know, but how do you actually think about it? How do you actually use this and think through these things? And you should think about it because me, you, us, we are the church. So this has like a really big piece of significance. If you're a young person in here and your eyes are currently rolled to the back of your head, this is you too. This is what you'll step into. This is what you're a part of and becoming and will one day do when the rest of us are dead and gone, right? This is a really, really big deal. We come to think of church as a building that people go to on Sundays. And I just think that is a fascinating departure at some point in time from what Jesus was actually referencing when he looks at Peter there. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm standing here in a building teaching you guys as part of this whole thing. I get the irony of all of it. But how we think about ourselves, how we engage this thing really matters, right? Do we think about the ecclesia the way Jesus just talked about it? Or do we think of it as the four-walled house of God? Even think of our, some of our worship language. I believe we sang a song today. In the house of the Lord, as though this is a house that's built because God dwells in here. Well, actually, this is just a husk. It really is. I know that's a weird way of putting it. I love this place. Like I've been here for a long time. My heart is here, but this is a husk when you're not in it. 
It's what it is. You, friends, are the church. You don't attend the church. You are the church. And it becomes such a massive distinction, and it is so incredibly important that each of us as individuals begin to wrestle with this. Let me, let me show you why it's problematic that we think about maybe this place or, or church at large as like four walls in a building in a place that I attend. So humor me, this is going to create a little bit of controversy. Um, but I love ice cream, and I know that came out of left field. I do. I love ice cream. Some of you guys could probably care less about ice cream. I could care less about almost every other dessert on the planet. If you got rid of ice cream, it would be like a day of mourning. I'd be so sad. I love ice cream. I do. And I happen to believe, and I know this is going to be the debatable part and widely contested, that there is one flavor and one ice cream in all of Tucson that is the absolute best. But before I share that with you, I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell them the best flavor here in town of ice cream. And don't go existential and have a debate on all of this. Like, just to share it. Okay, go. Also, don't fight with each other. It's fine. It's just ice cream, people. Okay. It's funny, uh, in one of the other services, some of you guys are really go, going after this right now. I hear you. It's good. It was just one word, y'all. Just one thing. Okay. Somebody in one of the other services said vanilla, and I was like, oh, that's interesting that you like flavorless ice cream. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> just joking. Those are fighting words. I know. So, in my very personal, very subjective opinion, and I recognize this, I think that the absolute best ice cream in all of Tucson happens to be something called Bourbon Almond Brittle at the Hub downtown. I love it. If it's not you, I hear you. I think you're wrong, but I love it. Okay? But you do you. I, I remember the first time that I had this particular ice cream. I do. I remember I walked in and I was like, yeah, I've never been here before. Bourbon, almond, brittle. Sure, I'll try that and I'll get a small a little cup, you know, because you don't want to get a lot of something you may not like. And that was my first mistake. It's too small. And I ordered this thing and they give you the microscopic scoop that you're going to hold with the tiny cup so that we can all just remember what it was like to be an infant back in the day. And I go to raise the bite to my mouth. Now, I don't know if we all notice this with food at times, but when you're raising something to your mouth, you, you smell it, you see it, and your senses begin to engage long before your taste buds ever do, and all of that informs the whole process. And I knew as I was about to take a bite, because I could smell it, I could see it, and I was like, this is going to be really good. Like, this is going to be really good. And I started to get excited, and I put the ice cream in my mouth, and I closed my mouth, and I did that weird thing where you just let it dissolve in your mouth like we're all children again. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's just in my mouth, and my eyes are super wide, and I'm looking around at people because that's the only thing I can do to communicate my experience because I don't want to talk with my mouth full and ruin the moment. And so I'm just sitting there looking around going like, like at everybody because I want everyone to know. I'm like, do you guys, are you not aware of what's happening, of how good this is? I wanted to walk outside and be like, hey, I know all of you guys are searching, but they found the flavor. It's in here. Like, it's done. We can go home. Like, just buy it and go home. It's great. It's already solved. It is amazing. I love it. I want it right now. I've talked about it so much this morning <laughs> that I find myself being like, I might need to go make that happen, right? I think it's great. And then I left, and I came back a few weeks later, and I walked in, and I was like, okay, way bigger cup. I'm excited. Let's do this. And I said, I'd like bourbon, almond, brittle, and give me the biggest cup that you have. And they said, I'm sorry, we're out of bourbon, almond, brittle. We just ran out. I know, you guys are like, oh, your disappointment. Sort of. I'd never been there before. Like, that was the only other time that I'd been there. So I thought, maybe the hub just makes magic ice cream. And maybe all of the ice cream is just like this crazy existential experience that I just had. Okay, I'll have honey lavender. That's what I got. And it was good. It was good. Some of you don't like soap. I do. 
right? It was really good. I loved it. But it wasn't bourbon almond brittle. Like it just, it just wasn't. I wanted it to be, but it wasn't. But it was really, really good. And I was like, oh, this is really great ice cream. They do a great job here. I wish it was bourbon almond brittle. So I left. I think I came back 14 to 15 times in the remainder of that year. And I think that's lowballing. Part of me is in my head going like, Ryan, you should have done better on there. I, I loved it. Like I, I went back. I think at this point, I've tried every flavor that the hub has to offer. I think I've tried like all of them. And none of them really live up to the bourbon, almond, brittle moment. There's other ones that are really good. Some of them have been pretty like standout, like this type of thing, but it's just not bourbon, almond, brittle. And you have to be wondering at this particular point why I am sharing all of this with you in this moment. Here's why. Here's where this is going. Besides, you're welcome. Go enjoy ice cream after the service that I didn't buy you because we don't have it. I'm sorry. Okay, ready? When you think of the church as a building or as a place you go to, what happens is you start to adopt a very individualistic perspective about it. And so what happens is you go to the place, much like I went to the hub for ice cream, and and maybe you have a bourbon almond brittle experience on that day as a metaphorical way of talking about it. Maybe you walked into a church and remember why you started coming in the first place or what reached into your heart and life and your mind in that moment that you had where maybe it was the church, maybe it was the place you went to where you were just like, I've never been in a place like this. I've never experienced something like that. Maybe it was the message that was shared that day. And for some reason, that message was what you needed to hear and it just reached into your depths and ministered to you in a profound way. And you found yourself saying like, Jesus is good. There's something good about this. Maybe it was a song that you sang and that song resonated with you. It struck a chord, not just outside you, but inside you. And you felt yourself being seen and being known and experiencing the heart of God for you and for others in a way that was real and true and powerful. Maybe you experienced the love of God in a service of some kind, in some way where you were just like, this was really, really powerful. And you had a taste of what that's like. And you're like, this is life-changing. This is so good. And then as we all do, you went home. And you found yourself going, I'm gonna come back next Sunday. I'm gonna come back to this thing again. And then you went and you're like, okay. And like me showing up to the hub, like it's bourbon, almond, brittle time. And, And then there was a service and maybe it was a good service. Maybe it was fine. Maybe it was a decent message. Maybe it was good songs, but but it wasn't the bourbon, almond, brittle service. Do you see what I'm saying? And so there's a part where church can almost become like this individual thing where it's like, there's this holy place with these holy walls where holy men or holy women come and present the thing and we're all, we're all living our normal lives and then we come into here to attach ourselves to the sacred and, and, and I'm trying to connect with that and I've had this one experience or two experiences and it was so good and yet the next week I, I just started cycling through all 31 flavors and I find myself just kind of doing this now. And see, what's really hard when you come to see the church as the place, as the four walls, is you actually come to see the service or the sermon or the worship or some part of the experience of what it is that you attend or that you come to as the ice cream. But it's not. The truth is the beautiful thing is actually Jesus. And where is he? In you. He's in you. The reason it tasted so good, the reason you knew what unconditional love was is because Jesus unconditionally loved you. The reason the song struck a chord deep in your heart and in your soul and your being is because the Spirit of God wanted to reach you and Jesus made himself known to you. 
The reason any of this has the power and the depth in any one of our lives to become something real and worth, worth saddling up next to and being a part of and in is because Jesus has done something so absolutely real in you that that's the real experience. And when you go home, it goes with you. And when you come here, it comes with you because the church, this is a husk. You, friends, we are the church. We are those who have had our lives transformed, our hearts opened up by the love of God in such a way that we have found ourselves saying, I am new, I am new, I am forgiven. We are those who know what it is to be loved so much that we find ourselves with the ability to look around and say, how could I not also give that away and love some other people around me? We are those who've had the profound experience of Christ to such a degree that we find ourselves looking, going, and I, I want to be a part of his mission, his gathering, his thing for the world because the work's not over and how could I keep this for me, to myself? This, you don't attend a church. I don't attend a church. We are the church. Jesus, from the very beginning, says, Peter, you are gonna start my gathering of people, gathered together because they've had a specific encounter and they've gathered for a specific purpose because there's something great I still wanna do in this world. What does Jesus say at the very end of his life? He says, go therefore, make more disciples. Go let other people know just how loved they are that they might come to see and encounter the depth of the love of God for themselves and begin a relationship. Let them join, let them be a part. Grow the group <laughs> as a way of talking about it, Right? It's crazy. Do you want to hear something really amazing that I love? And I think God is brilliant for the way that he did this. And I think he, he made just a profound point in all of this, right? In Jesus' day, if you wanted to know you were forgiven, if you wanted to know you were good with God, if you wanted to know you were spiritual and right, you needed to go to the holy place to talk to the holy guy. You did. You needed to go to the temple, get as close to the presence of God, talk to the priest to figure out what you needed to do to be right with God. Was there sacrifice, forgiveness that needed to be made, teaching that needed to be followed? What was it that you needed to do? right? And so you would draw as close as you possibly could. When Jesus dies for us as the last sacrifice for all time, no other sacrifice will ever be needed. No blood ever shed because his blood once and for all, right? When Jesus dies to forgive and extend forgiveness, not just to an individual, but to the world in this powerful kind of way. And then he rises again and says, not only are you forgiven, I want to make you new and I want to my spirit will now reside in you. When all of that moment happens at his death, do you know what happens inside the temple? The curtain of the Holy of Holies is torn down the middle. And I always thought that was cool. I'm like, wow, how powerful. It tore the curtain. You know what? That, that's, I missed it. What's powerful about the curtain tearing is it's gone. There's now no curtain. There's no, no sacred space in place. There's nothing that, there's no holy man that needs to go back there to interact with the one true God in the presence of God. The curtain tears, leaving behind a room with simply the ark inside of it for the spirit of God has gone out. And where does the Bible tell us the spirit of God now dwells? In you. In you. Where does Jesus make his home? In you. He says, surely I will be with you even unto the end of the age. I want to read a passage to you. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. These are the words of Paul. He's writing to a church. And I know I can read this one verse to you and you could hear this like, Ryan's just teaching a thing. But what I want you to hear is like, this is Paul speaking to you who are a part of a church, speaking to you, for you. I want you to wrestle with this. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 3.16, he says, do you not know? As in, do you not understand are you not aware? Have you not wrapped your head and your heart around this? Do you not know that you are God's temple 
and that God's spirit dwells in you. This would have been an earth-shattering passage in that particular era. I mean, this would have been striking as people were like, I thought that was sacred. I just realized I am. Wow. You, friends, are the holy place. You ever thought of yourself that way? You are the holy place. You are that place because you are the place where the spirit of God dwells. He dwells in you. How could it get more sacred than that? He is not far off from you. You don't need to go someplace to go do a thing, to go find him out there. He, you are a temple. You are the place that people look at like the holy of holies. Do you see yourself that way? Is that you? You are the priest. Paul, Paul makes reference to this. Peter makes reference to this. You see this again and again. We're called a, a royal priesthood. You are the priest. You don't need a mediator to stand between you and God because Jesus is the one mediator who stands once and for all. You get to talk face to face. You get to pray and to worship and to relate and to intercede on behalf of other people and to do amazing things. You are a priest because that's who you are now. And when we gather together as Christ's gathering, as his assembly, what we're doing is we're bringing this fact that each of us have this heart, this life that was ultimately changed by Christ. Something has become more true than what we ever understood to be true in us. And so we gather together and we bring all that together so that in great power, with great potency, it can flow out into the world beyond us because Jesus has something important he still wants to do because he's not done loving the world. The church isn't where we go to gather to hide away. The church is where we go bring all of that together so that we can do things far more potent than any one of us could do on our own. It's you, it's me, it's us. We are not a solo experience, we are a one another. That's the premise of this whole sermon series. We are a one another. And so friends, may we endeavor to love one another like Christ has loved us so that when the world looks at this thing that we call the church, they see the face of Christ as clearly as possible because it's the thing that you were hungry for, that I was hungry for, that people still are. And it's you, it's in you, it's in me, it is in us. We are the ecclesia of Christ. So may I just say welcome because it is good to be with you. And I mean that sincerely. I couldn't think of a better group of people to just be the church with. It's powerful, isn't it? When was the last time you saw yourself that way? When was the last time you, you looked at yourself that way? And I don't mean to do this like a ton of pressure where you're like, well, I gotta shape up. <laughs> no, just take the love that's inside of you and let it just make its way outside of you. Christ will partner with you, He'll figure it out. He hasn't left, he's with it's okay. It's just a powerful thing for each of us to be. You know, it is powerful. It's a powerful thing to think about. I found myself just feeling that same way, but it's also real hard. It's also really hard. It is because some of you guys are sitting in here and you're like one row away from people that you wouldn't normally talk to, right? Me too. Some of us, if we were to sit down at a dinner table and start talking, it would get awkward and we'd be like, oh crud, I don't, I don't know what to do right now. Because we all come from different backgrounds and different places and we have different ways of being. And so I would annoy lots of you, trust me. Some of you guys are like, I like to keep it at a distance. That's nice. Like we all have these things. I just think it's hilarious. You know, if, if God had just said, you know, Ryan, you and I are gonna do this thing, I'd be like, sweet, because then if there's an issue, I'm like, between me and God and my devotional life, I will just work this thing out. Whatever that looks like. My spiritual life, I'll just work it out. But he didn't. He was like, hey, we're gonna do this thing. And I invited all these people that I didn't tell you about. 
Just like you, you didn't get to pick all the people that are in this room right now. And the honest truth is you might not have. Some of them you would because everybody in here is dear, but also there's just people that you wouldn't have talked to or wouldn't have known. And, and if you're looking at me kind of uncomfortable about all of this, let's just be honest for a second. Anybody who's ever been part of a group project where you did not get to pick the teams knows that it's really hard to like succeed. And then you got to work a lot of things out along the way, don't you? And that's just called being a human. It's just very, very normal. And this is how they start the church. And for this reason, when you read through your New Testaments, there's this one word, two words in English, one word in Greek, one another. It's only one word in Greek. We see it over and over and over again. It is used 100 times in your New Testament. That is not just like a mention or like, oh, you know, there's this kind of one unique moment where Paul or Peter, somebody's talking. 100 times in there. Uh, 94 verses, 47 of those verses are actually used specifically to talk to churches to be like, hey guys, here's how you should actually treat one another with specificity because it needed to be said because it was hard for people to do. You had a Jewish audience and a Greek audience who came from very different backgrounds and beliefs and things just making each other mad all of the time trying to figure out how to be this movement, this ecclesia of Christ. Can I share something that I think is hilarious with you guys? It's not really going to advance much today, but it will help you remember something. I think it's funny. Do you guys want to know the Greek word for one another? It's only one word, right? Here's the Greek word for one another. Ready? All alone. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I've been wrestling with that all week in my head, and I thought there'd be like some really cool thing to teach. There's not. It's just irony. All alone. But you'll remember it now. That's the Greek word for one another. All alone gets used 47, in 47 verses to help us learn the importance of how we treat one another because we have, we're the church. We have a really important mission in front of us and God wants to love the whole world through us in a way that changes the world to become a group of people that are transformed by the love and the power of Jesus Christ. And that's a really, really big deal. So we've got to learn how to be a one another. Now in that, and this is the second part of this message that I had been talking about earlier today. There's two essential ingredients. When you list out all of the one another's, all the times that that Greek word, all alone, is used in the New Testament, you start to see some patterns. One third of the time, one third of the time it's used in reference uh, with love one another, which is significant. I mean, that is over and over and over and over again. Love one another, love one another. It's in there. 30% of the time. The other 30%, another 30%, it's used towards unity, which is one of the key ingredients we're going to talk about today. Then 15% of the time, it's used towards humility. That's the second key ingredient that we're going to talk about in just a moment here. And then the rest of it is kind of like a smattering of other things that get listed in there to make up the rest of that percentage for those of you who like math and would have lost your minds if I hadn't completed it, right? So today, those two key ingredients are unity and humility. These are essential if we're going to be the church and not just attend a church, right? Two essential ingredients, unity and humility. So let's take a look at unity for a minute. There's a series of passages we could have looked at, but I wanted to land at one that I just, I think, impartial to and that I love, and it's Romans chapter 12. It's one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. The reason why I love Romans chapter 12 is how many of you have ever found yourself in a moment where you're hearing like, we should just love people, we should love people, and you're like, that just sounds really abstract and I don't know what to do? Romans chapter 12, Paul was so kind is to say one phrase, let love be genuine. And then all of the verses after that are him giving example of it looks like this. It looks like this. It looks like this. So if you've ever been confused about love, I want you to go to Romans chapter 12. I want you to open up to verse nine and spend just one week or one, one week at a time working through one of those things. It will transform your year. It'll transform your life. It's powerful. 
Now in that section of scripture, we get to verse 16 and Paul writes to the church. He says this, live in harmony with one another. Now, if you've played music, you know that harmony isn't the same as melody. In fact, what harmony means, or what harmony does not mean is sameness. Right? So if, you've, if you're familiar with music at all, what happens is when you have somebody singing melody, if we all just go sing melody, it's all one note, it's all really loud, it's all really intense. What singers do, and this is what many of our vocalists do even on a Sunday, is they come along and one person will sing the melody and then other people will pick up the harmonies. Harmonies aren't the same notes, but they're notes that mirror well. They're notes that match well. They, they flow well in the same chord progressions. And what ends up happening is they fill out the sound so that the whole thing is a little fuller, a little more potent, a little more impactful. The harmonies, the melodies, all of it works together. This is this beautiful picture of harmony. It isn't sameness. It's all the differences playing their part to make something better than any one individual could, right? But when we, that's, that's this picture of unity. When we think of unity, though, we often think of everyone as same. If we want to be unified, everybody get on page and be the same, right? Like there's a, there's a part of that that's really, really easy. We need to look the same, act the same, dress the same. Like there's a wonder if you walk into a lot of churches in America, you're like, why is everyone like khakis and a polo and talking and saying the same things? Everybody keeps using the word fellowship over and over. What, like who taught all these people all these things to speak this and wear the uniform and, and all this stuff? There's a part of it where it can often in churches look like unity equals sameness. We all believe the exactly the same. We do exactly the same. We are just the same. And that misses the point. That works really, really well until you add anyone who comes from a different culture, a different race, a different background, different upbringing. Because those things shape how we see the world, how we view things, how we interact, some of the traditions that we value, some of the traditions that we don't, all of the different pieces and things that, that go in there, right? So many different things. It can even shape language in a powerful way, which shapes how we understand so many things. You know, when we read about pictures of heaven, one of my favorite parts is we read that every tongue, tribe, and nation is going to be gathered in heaven. What I love about that is it doesn't, it's not sameness. It's all of it. It's the whole big wide world that Jesus died for gathered in this place. Every tongue, tribe, and nation, which means there's a lot of room in there, right? There's a lot of this, but what creates unity, right? So we need to live in harmony. And if it's not sameness, what is it? Here's this. Unity in the church doesn't come from complete agreement, it comes from a common experience and a common goal. I want to say that again. Unity in the church doesn't come from complete agreement. I think that's why we talk about um, acceptance over agreement so often around here. It's a value that we would hold. It doesn't come from agreement. It comes from common experience and common goal. When I was a freshman in college, I walked into my dorm room and I didn't know anybody. I just moved from uh, Tucson to Chicago. And, and so I walk in and there's this large guy uh, he's six foot six. He will be my roommate. His name is Will, and he's standing in my dorm room. I'm six five. He's six six. I was like, I thought they made it as a joke with short beds, where it's just like, yeah, you two, put them in the same place, you know. So we're in there, and those are about the only things that we shared in common. We were so different from one another. I grew up here. So I grew up here at Casas, here in Tucson, so like Southwest or West Coast, I don't know, whatever you call this whole thing that we're a part of out here. Uh, Will grew up in rural Kansas in a Mennonite community where his father was the veterinarian for a group of farmers. So those are really different upbringings. Those are really different backgrounds. And, and there's just a lot of differences. Like here's one, for example, for me, 
I can't go to sleep at night unless I've taken a shower. I don't always love this about myself, but I've been this way forever. I'm one of those annoying people. It can be 2 a.m. and I'm like, I got a shower so I can go to bed. Like, it's weird. I know, I'm sorry. But it's true. Will could sleep just fine, but he, he didn't shower well. He, he had a lot of problems taking showers and he would just be like, you know, I just think it's in the way. Or I don't really feel like it today. Or hey, if they don't like it, that's their problem, not mine. And I'd be like, oh, I don't know. I think it's kind of our problem, right? Like, oh. All of this, like maybe we should do that. I used to stuff dryer sheets in the vents and in his shoes and different things to try to like neutralize the room sometimes without telling him before I learned what passive aggression was. So <laughs> we just, we had our differences and we got in our arguments and in our fights. I would wash my clothes at the laundromat downstairs. There was this thing where you'd pay and you'd wash and you'd dry your clothes. Will would do all of his laundry in the, bed, in the dorm room sink and then he'd string line across our room and hang everything up to dry. So the room always smelled damp and moist and gross, like, like drying clothing all of the time. Uh, I know I said a lot of your least favorite words in that moment. And, and it just was gross. And so we got in arguments over this. I would make ramen or pancakes for a cheap snack because they were cheap and they would feed an army and you could just eat off it forever. Will, <laughs> this is my favorite part about Will. Will brought a giant bag of feed oats. Not Quaker, feed oats. Uh, and in this big clear bag and in his bottom drawer of his desk, he had a humongous jar of molasses and he had a huge wooden spoon. He would take the wooden spoon, dip it in the molasses, pull it out, dunk it straight into the bag of feed oats, spin it around and whatever came out, he ate. And that was his snack. And I used to just watch this going like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and he's like, don't judge me, it's fine. And it, it was, I guess, I don't know, it was weird right? We were so different. I was loud and argumentative and I drove him crazy. He disappeared for two days without telling me one time because he was mad at me. And I was like, did he quit school? Did I lose a roommate? I don't. And then he just came back quietly and we didn't really talk about it too much after that. We didn't agree on a whole lot and we got in a lot of confrontations. But here's the thing, guys. Will had his life transformed by Jesus Christ. He had a moment, an experience in his life where he had figured out just how much Jesus loved him. And that so transformed him that he found himself going, I don't just want this for me. I want to go love other people. And I think this becomes a gift for the world. And I want to figure this out with my life. I want to know how to, like, I'm all about this. And I had had the same experience. And so despite being different in our cultures and beliefs at times, because we were very different, we shared the same heart because Christ was in the middle of it. And I love Will. He's a friend. I respect Will. I know I'm sharing stories, like giving him a hard time, but he is like a dear human being now. I sang alongside Will. I worshiped alongside Will. I served alongside Will. I learned things alongside Will. I shared my heart and my life alongside Will. I cried tears with Will. And I grew as a human being alongside Will because Christ was big enough to unite us because we shared common experience and common goal. And despite all of our differences, that's enough. And I share that with you today because... That's this. That's what we're in right now. That's what we're doing. There are people in here that you're not gonna agree with. There's people who are gonna come here that you're not gonna agree with. There's people that are gonna drive you crazy. There's people where you're gonna look and be like, I don't understand the molasses and the oats thing, man. I mean, not really, but you know. And you're not gonna know what to do with any of that. And can I just make a challenge to you this year? This year, will you open your heart to people around you and let Christ be enough to unite you? If you're gonna step into small groups this year, which I'm so excited, we're launching some small groups, or if you're already a part of a Sunday morning community or whatever that is, and you're in these places, can you just make a commitment as you step into those environments and those places to open your eyes, to care about, open your heart to the people that are around you and let Christ be enough to unite you. In the moment where something comes up and you think that it's bigger than Jesus, it's just not. 
It's not. And if you go, but I don't know what to do, and this is weird, and this is awkward, and I'm not sure, then the answer is the same as the thing you trust. Trust Jesus to continue to lead you forward together. And I'm gonna just trust because I'm a really idealistic person that Jesus is big enough to work this out together as we love one another as he loved us. I think it's a powerful, powerful thing. And I'm gonna ask that you guys bring that to this year. Bring it to your environments. Bring it to wherever it is that you find yourself. You wanna know why? Because you are the church. And Jesus has extraordinary things to do through you, through us this next year. Second thing, and then I'll close. That brings us to the essential ingredient of humility. We don't need to go to another verse. Romans chapter 12, verse 16. Let's read the rest of it. Paul says, live in harmony with one another, which we read, but then he says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Friends, what often happens when we read it, by the way, when we read do not be haughty, most of us look at that now in our own kind of language and we're like, don't be attractive. No, it's saying, like, don't think of yourself as higher or better than everybody else, but associate with the lowly. Now, here's what happens when we try to focus on humility. As we tend to look and we're like, I need to be humble, so I gotta make myself low. Okay, yep, I'm gonna try to make myself low. And then somebody's be like, man, you got low self-esteem. And they're gonna be like, you're great, you're awesome. And you'll be like, I am awesome, I am great. God made me this way. And they'll be like, how dare you be so arrogant? And you're just gonna end up in this loop. And if you've ever lived your life this way, you're gonna feel that. Some of you, if you look back, if you just take a step back from some of these moments, it's the cycle that so many of us are in. But here's the truth. This is really powerful. Humility really isn't about you. Humility isn't about you standing in front of the mirror. Humility is about when you push the mirror aside and you open your eyes to see someone else. And you're not content to look at them as lesser or lower. And you want to love them in a way that lifts them up. And what you find is that becomes the process to deal with pride and find yourself humble. It's when you open your eyes to actually care about somebody else. I had a moment in my life that seared this into my head. It was about 20 years ago now. And I can just remember it so vividly. I was working in retail in Chicago. I worked in a three-story store. The men's floor was on the top, petites on the second, women's on the bottom. I worked up on the third floor. And so if you wanted to get to our department, you walked up three whole flights of stairs. That's also where the bathroom was. And I think it's because it was in downtown Chicago and they just didn't want everybody coming off the street and using the bathroom all of the time. So they put it as hard, the most inconvenient place you could possibly get to up on the third floor. Now on one particular day, I'm standing there, you've got the walkie-talkie because there's different floors to talk to different people, which you need. And the walkie-talkie starts going off and there's all this chatter on there. And I can hear people kind of gasping. I can hear some people gagging in the walkie-talkie. And I can also hear people warning like, oh my gosh, it smells so bad. And they start to warn that a woman has walked into the building. And I go and I look over the railing and you can see that a homeless woman had walked into the building. And she's carrying all of her things. She's got lots of things. She doesn't dare leave them outside. These are her possessions and who would, what would happen to them. She takes them with her, right? She's got them. She goes walking into the building. And she doesn't make an entrance. She walks so slow. Guys, it's like this. She's just walking. And she goes through the women's floor on first and she makes her way to the stairs. And as she passes people, the odor that is coming off of her is so strong. And this isn't me exaggerating or being dramatic. The odor was so strong that people were needing to throw up. People were struggling with the stench so bad. And so she starts to just slowly make her way up the stairs coming to the third floor, I'm assuming to use the bathroom. And as she does, the chatter on the walkie-talkies are uh, like, there's a lot of laughter because people are like dry heaving and throwing up. There's a lot of like, hey, what are we gonna do with customers? There's all this problem solving. There's all these things that are happening all on the walkie-talkie. She finally makes her way to the third floor. She gets up there, she goes into the bathroom and she goes into the bathroom to clean herself and she's gone in there for a really long time. 
And then eventually she comes out and does the same thing, slowly starts to make her way down the stairs. Now, while she's in the bathroom, I'm standing up there with a group of sales associates and a manager, and we're all just looking, and we're all kind of making jokes about who the poor human being is that's gonna have to go clean the bathroom out after this is all over. You know, and everybody's giving each other a hard time and all of this other stuff, and then she comes out, and everybody's just super quiet and backing away and all these things as she goes to make her way down the stairs. And I look over at my manager, Mario, in that moment, and his face, everyone else kind of had like a snicker, and even on the on the walkie-talkies, you can hear people laughing and, you know, just, just whatever's happening on there. There's all this chatter, and I look at his face, and he has just this subtle, like, it's weird. He's smiling, but it's not in a sarcastic way. I can see compassion on his face, and I'm like, Mario, what's your face? I ask people that sometimes. Mario, what's going on with your face? What, what, what are you thinking? And he says, Ryan, you probably wouldn't know this about me, but I grew up really poor, and I was actually homeless as a kid, and he goes, you know, the truth of that woman is, is that any one of us could be in her shoes given the right set of circumstances, the right set of experiences. And he got quiet for a second, and his face went a little bit solemn, and then he said the following words, and I remembered them to this day, and he goes, you know, the truth is, I don't know what smells worse. A woman who hasn't showered in a very long time, or a group of people who all think she's better, they're better than she is. And the room just got quiet. <laughs> And he turns and walks away and I volunteered to go clean the restroom and I found myself not engaging the same way that I had when she had walked in. When she walked in, she was a problem to overcome. She was something that we were gonna have to deal with. She was an inconvenience to me and by the time she left, because of the words that Mario said, it's like my eyes were open to see, no, she is a beloved child of God. She is a precious human being. And as I went to clean the restroom, which was a very difficult thing to do, I just found myself praying for her. See, humility isn't about you staring in the mirror going like, am I here or am I here? It's when you look and you simply say, I'm gonna open my eyes to see other people as beautiful children of God, regardless of who they are and where they are. I think it should be as simple as this for us as a church, friends. If they matter to God, they matter to us. I think that should be the simple ethic that exists here that fosters the kind of humility in each and every one of us that leads to a powerful kind of love that speaks of Jesus. And so I just wanna challenge you guys with this same thing in this next year. Will you open your hearts to one another, right? Will you treat one another with humility? Will you see, will you commit to open your eyes to see one another as people whom God dearly loves? And will you just act accordingly? That's it. Because, you know, I know that might sound really simple, but that's profound. And in a world like ours, in a culture like ours, and in a time like right now, there's a lot of work to be done. Why? Because we are the church. And God is a good and beautiful thing in front of us that he wants each and every one of us to step into because he has loved you in a way that he wants you to love others. And I think we can do this together in a good and beautiful way. And friends, can I just say, there's not a single group of people on the planet that I would rather do that with. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the way that you love us, that you have transformed us, Lord. And I thank you for the way that you've united us as your church here in this space. God, help us to see beyond four walls and to know that the love of Christ, that you, Lord, are with us, that we get to take you home, take you to work, take you everywhere we go. God, I pray that you would work powerfully through us when we come together. I pray that you would open our eyes and hearts to the people that you want us to love, Lord. And I thank you that you're not dead and gone, but alive and well, and that there's a goodness you still wanna bring into this world. So use us, Lord. We wanna be your church, your gathering, your ecclesia. We trust you. Help us to walk in faith. In Jesus' name, we pray all of these things. Amen. 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 I turn my mic off. Before you go, 
Um, my name is Ryan. I'd love to meet you. I'll be over here in this welcome area. If you're a guest, it's really good to have you today. I'd love to shake your hands. Uh, for all of you, I hope you have a great week. We'll see you soon.